economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russell McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, my other graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right. So we're continuing on here with our journey of making it through a list of priors. We did this on the last episode. We made it through 10 there is 20 total. And so it's kind of fun to burn through some of these and see if we can get some insights. So I'll uh, start off with number 11. Those persons who will most eagerly and ably seek official power, those who will most successfully seek to be in positions of to initiate coercion will be those persons who have the fewest qualms about imposing their wills on others. That is holders of official power will be disproportionately drawn from the ranks of predators and the officios. So listeners, I promise on the last episode, I did not read ahead. I didn't know <laughs> when I was talking about number 10, that number 11 would be making the point that I was making. And I, I think this is a, a good point. I, it was Hayek who made this. I looked it up between episodes. And yeah, it, it is the, the idea of the worst getting on top. It is pretty sad to think we can arguably reason that the worst people will be there. But then we look at the last few elections and start to say there's some evidence for that. I'd say there's been some empirical evidence here. Yeah. I mean, last, like the last 200 years? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there's been no shortage of digging up baggage on some of the old founders that were held in high esteem at one point. Well, it turned out they were real people too. If we want to look in history, even look at like what happened with the presidency. And so we have George Washington. He's in there for four years. He leaves voluntarily. Like, you know, for, or does he do the full eight? No, no, I forgot. No, he only does four. Okay. Thanks Luke. He leaves voluntarily. Second guess myself there. And then consider someone else. We've got Franco and Delano Roosevelt, FDR. Roosevelt stays so long that after the fact they have to, or they, they start trying to in, impose term limits. Uh, and what was FTR? Well, he was in many ways a predator. He, you know, basically strong arms the judicial branch into doing what he wanted them to do. He, you know, had internment camps in the U.S. There was all sorts of things bad associated with FTR. So people who are more willing to exercise and hold power are going to stick around longer, FDR. The people who are humble and don't want to stay in power for very long, Washington, those people get selected out. And I think that's what's happened. I guess I got a little problem with Predator. I, I don't know if I want to lay on FDR that he was oh, I thought that was too nice. a vicious Predator. <laughs> but I mean, I just see the world as the, the good intentions without, you know, thinking about all of the potential economic consequences that might result. So I, I see some good hearted people in some cases. I don't know if he was, you know, doing some things that I would fall into. For me, the Predator category is like, killing some people or something. Maybe that's too strong, but. And we know that FDR <laughs> never killed anybody, right? <laughs> I'm in Peter's camp. I'd even go further. FDR is a, you know, a Batman villain. <laughs> his little cigarette holder. Uh, he's you know, the inspiration for the penguin. Uh, <laughs> but it sounds like we're all on board with number 11. So let's talk, let's move to number 12, which is 
Most of what is done by modern states is done through the initiation of coercion. This reality is no less true in stable democracies, such as the United States, than in authoritarian hellholes, such as Venezuela. <laughs> he doesn't hold back much there, does he? Was that in the text or did you add the, that last part? That was in the text. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right in there. Okay, so again, the coercion comes up, doing something by force. What's interesting with state stuff, though, is that it's still coercion, but some people were in favor of it. So let's just say, just to make a number up here, 70% of the people like that the state passed this policy that was coercive, but yet supported by 70% of the people. And 30% of the people are the ones feeling the punch the most that their state has let them down or other, other uh, issues. So I think it's a claim that's right, but yet in a democracy, we have supporters of whatever, some, of, some people will be supporting whatever the government, it might even be the opposite, that there's a minority of people that are supporting, which is more likely the case with cronyism and corporate welfare or something and subsidies coming their way that a minority of people who happen to lobby millions of dollars towards a certain policy change were successful in doing so and had the general public known all of the details and not been rationally ignorant, they might have spoke up. Yeah, I basically agree with this point. And trying to find a, a quote, one of the, the books that I like a lot, only Miss Phil Byron Stinger, he has this comments that in democracy, the, the violence becomes more abstract, which I think is true, is that, you know, you don't see the fact that there's violence behind taxation, but it's, it still exists, though. And so the violence becomes more, more of something that, you know, it's there, but it's sort of out of sight. And I think that's right. Uh, and I also agree, Russ, I think you made a good point. Boudreaux is writing these as classical liberal priors. I don't think these are most people's priors. I actually think maybe most people would say that they think coercion is usually unjustified, but I don't actually think most people believe that. I think most people believe coercion is usually justified. A lot of times, some libertarians and classical liberals take the strategy of, well, we just have to explain to people that the state is violence, and then they'll be in favor of rolling a lot of it back. I actually don't think that's true. I think that even if you got people to accept that claim that the state is violence, they'd still be in favor of the things they're in favor of because to a lot of people, good intentions are enough to initiate violence. And maybe even some people would say, I'm against it, but as long as the majority of people think it's okay, I'll, I'll go along with it. That's actually different than you're violating. I have the right to not have you impose yourself on me. And that's good enough alone. And I think that's part of what Justin brings up a lot is just having that, that you've got the right to do that, that individual liberty. That's what rights are. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. right. A lot of rights in this. <laughs> and I would also point out that one of the things that's been remarkable lately is the degree to which the state will say, we want you guys to do this voluntarily. Don't make us make you do it. Right. And yeah. so that's a direct like, hey, we're going to try <laughs> to give this the veneer yeah. of free compliance. But should you refuse to comply, we have no qualms right. about forcing you to do it. Yeah. And that's the problem with the government getting too big is that they're already funding. Let's we're, we're at Ottawa University here where we're a nonprofit private institution, but yet the government still wields a lot of power in that all of our students are on, uh, I shouldn't say all of them, but many, most of our students are on some sort of federal student loan. And so we have guidelines and compliance issues that we have to deal with, even though we're a nonprofit 
private institution, when the state says something like, we kind of want, like what you were just saying, we want you to do things this way. Otherwise, uh, students might not be able to go to your institution. Yeah, we're going to tie funding towards your decision to do this. And then if this institution makes a decision, somebody could say, well, it's a private institution, you know, and that just shows, you know, the degree to which like the long arm of the state can slip itself into the glove of private enterprise yeah. and you know, touch yeah. everything. Yeah, I think it's the most, uh, I, I think this happens in healthcare a lot too, but with education, off the top of my head, I think there's maybe three private colleges out there that do not accept federal funding. Hillsdale's one, I know for sure. I think the College of the Ozarks, that's the name of it, where students go to work and stuff. Yeah. And then I think there's maybe one more, but otherwise every single... Maybe Grove City. Yeah, it might be Grove City. Uh, every single college or university accepts federal aid and then are subject to um, changes that the state makes. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Who's got the next one here? Uh, it's 13, right? Yep. Yeah. Modern society, including, of course, the economy, is inconceivably complex. Well, that sounds good. I have literally no, I think that this is both a good rule of thumb and it's factually true. I, I think that Popper's argument that a system can't contain itself, I think that's enough evidence that we literally can't see, conceive of the complexity of our society. Yeah, I like inconceivably complex, yeah. you know, that it is not possible. And this brings up Hayek with the knowledge problem. And I think once you recognize that this is true, and this is one where I think it's literally true as written, mm -hmm. it gives more force to like two, which said, you know, we ought to treat people like they're, you know, they have, they know what they're doing and they're free and they make their own best interests. Yeah. And once you understand that society is complex to the degree that nobody can even understand it that lends more force to his earlier arguments about. Uh, well, and I've always struggled on how, how do you teach people about emergent order and the complexity that we think it is? I just wonder if that's a talking point or a way to educate people to say, here's this complex thing, but yet human beings have this order that emerges naturally to deal with the complexity rather than a single mind or or whatever, a central government being able to properly guide things. A classic example of this is like sidewalk concrete and uh, walking paths on college campuses that administrators like constantly fight that as soon as we pour the concrete for a sidewalk, that sidewalk is going to create another like non-planned path next to it, like cutting across the sidewalk and things like that. And, you know, if you try to pour in the concrete along that path, then actually another one is created. And so I, I think like that's maybe one good example, uh, but there's yeah. there's plenty of like actual examples like language, you know, other things that develop over time that are these emergent orders that could not have been planned. In fact, when we try to plan them, they don't work. Yeah, I always think language is by far the best example because language doesn't work in the way that you talked about it being planned. People do try to plan languages like Esperanto right. or whatever. Doesn't, can't happen. Um, if you look at the way actually even languages today are but you can talk about english as a language and, and say well the rules of english are specified by the dictionary and the rules of grammar or whatever but that's actually not the way people use words actually what happens is everybody speaks their own kind of idiolect yeah. and there are these language games that develop between people and to try to take a view of the language as a whole is to miss out on all those really important things that people do with language yeah and i think the same thing is true of economic activity. Number 14, social and economic complexity arises and grows only insofar as individuals are free to act peacefully as they choose. 
That is, are free to act peacefully without worrying that coercion will be initiated against them. All right. I mean, somewhat of a restatement of some of the previous stuff, I think. This one is unique and it connects the compl- the extent of complexity to mm-hmm. people's ability to act freely. I, I agree with this. A restatement of this would be Smith's concept that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market, right? That is, insofar as people can voluntarily exchange, there's going to be a complex division of labor where you can take on more and more jobs. So as the market grows, you know, you can specialize more and more and more. I think this is right. I think that the larger and more extensive our free trade market is, the more complex it's going to be to, to the point where like now in modern, you know, America, Barbie dolls that are sold are made in like six different countries. Like that's how complicated the chain of production is and how, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. And that's not even the, the raw materials. That's like just the pieces of the Barbie are made in six different and countries. And that division of so. labor is a process yep. itself that changes and evolves and emerges through people acting individually. Yeah. And the reason this is true is a lot of things that are more complex are a gamble. And so you can take on something that's more complex that has a lot of profit opportunity, but it's it's risky to do that. And so if you think that once you do that, you're going to be pilfered, you're going to have something stolen from you, it's not worth it for you to do that anymore. You're not going to take the risk. Instead, you're going to make your own shoes and your own food, and you're going to do stuff that can't be taken from you. And so the more coercion going on, the more theft there is, the less incentive there is for people to, you know, increase the complexity of their system. And and the beauty of the uh, invisible hand, which I believe is divine from God, Adam Smith might not have worded it that way, but that the Barbie doll who's got parts and pieces from six different places, Mattel organization is going to react to increases in the price of plastic in some other country They don't even know why it's going up, but they'll make changes and possibly seek another supplier based on something that might be unknown. Maybe there was a hurricane or some natural disaster that happened where somewhere in their supply chain. And I think that's what's uh, wonderful about the market system. And I should say the free market system that Mattel is free to seek the low cost provider and will react to changes in the price from some natural disaster that they may not know anything about, and they don't need to know, but we'll have resources moving to their highest and best use because of it. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for our break, and we'll come back afterwards and pick up with number 15 here, initiating coercion with the intent to improve society will inevitably do some bad stuff. We'll finish up the rest of that one in just a bit. Please look at our webpage to find our events, blog, and our swag shop. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123PovertySucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research. You can also please subscribe to our podcast. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode. So please send your questions to gordon.institute at gmail.com. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is hosting a high school event. We're looking nationwide to bring in High school people interested in freedom and flourishing. Our PPE League event is philosophy, politics, and economics. And teams will be competing with each other on some important topics. And we hope that they'll find this event compelling with special speakers like TK Coleman and Dr. Jim Gortney. We're partnering with the Foundation for Economic Education and hope that this will be something that all will enjoy. It is the Friday and Saturday, and we have travel expenses and some scholarships available. 
Each student will get a $500 tuition scholarship just for attending for Ottawa University. So if you or someone you know would be interested in an event like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, so we're back. We are on number 15 here. So initiating coercion with the intent to improve society or the economy will inevitably unleash consequences unintended by the initiators and unforeseen by those who encourage such use of coercion. I guess this kind of plays into the complexity thing that um, even on the face of it, something that seems like nobody's getting hurt and somebody's getting helped which would be a Pareto improvement in our econ world, like that would be a no-brainer, right? At least one person's getting help and nobody's getting hurt. It's not possible in our complex world with complex humans, I think is what he's getting at there. I don't know. Anything else to add? Yeah. So I think this is like the classic, like, oh, the minimum wage causes unemployment. You know, this is one example, a price control that, you know, says you have to pay a really high price or you, you don't have to pay a very high price for milk. Well, that's going to lead to a milk shortage, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I like 16. I think it's true. I think you should never, I, for a long time, I think economists focused on unintended consequences and didn't think about the facts that, well, actually maybe some of these were intended. And so I, I think when you, I do believe in unintended consequences, but when you see a consequence and you're assessing whether or not it was intended, I think one thing that you can do is like, well, did the person who, you know, passed this policy with, you know, clearly different results stated, did they benefit in a way that, you know, is not congruent with what they were saying? And so, for example, did a union support supported politician pass a minimum wage bill that they said would help the poorest and then it causes a bunch of low skilled worker unemployment and helps the union? You know, was that unintended? Was it not? Well, you know, I, I think it could be either. But I, I in general, I agree with the point. All right, Justin, you want to take 16? Unaware of unintended consequences, those who initiate coercion to improve society are too likely to make matters worse rather than better. Oh, that's an even stronger statement, right? I think of climate policy a little bit on this. If we, uh, so the use of coercion might be come in the form of subsidizing wind energy or sun energy or something along those lines. So the coercion part is we're taking taxpayer dollars to help fund that initiative, the argument might be that, well, everybody gains because the environment um, is going to be in better shape in the future. Or if it's not you directly, it'll be your kids that gain, which is somewhat of a utilitarian type trade-off. And so I think those things could have some unintended consequences of raising energy prices today for the poor, right? If we're, if we're having regulations that force coal and gas to be done a certain way that raises all prices of energy. And so that could be one example of an unintended consequence that could emerge. And I think to make the claim of whether it makes it worse than uh, better, really, I don't think can be proven. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right, Russ. And oftentimes we're sold simple solutions to complex problems. And I think this, uh, like just in a shorthand, we can notice like, well, if you've got a really complex problem like environmental issues and you've got this really simple solution of, you know, let's tax X, Y, or Z, it's like, well, can we really solve the complex problem with a, a simple solution? And I, I think that that's probably not likely. And so I think you're right on the money there. Isn't there the classical problem in economics 
I can't remember. It's just like the cobras in India, where yeah, uh, the cobra effect. Yeah, sure. the cobra effect, where uh, you know the British government, since there were too many cobras in India, said, "Well, let's just pay people to kill cobras. So bring us cobra tails, and <laughs> we'll you know we'll pay you for cobra tails." And that money has to come from somewhere. Arguably, it was coming from taxes levied on the the residents, right? So, uh, so there's the coercion in that. But the unintended consequence is, well, you know, not only does that pay you to kill a cobra and cut off its tail. But you might think, okay, I'm seeing that I've killed all the cobras on my property. Gosh, I'd love some more of that sweet, sweet cobra money. Um, And so it turned out that at the end of this policy, they ended up with more cobras in India than they started with because people realized we could just breed cobras and cut off their tails. So now we have more cobras than ever. They're all running around without their tails. And this is a perfect example of something that was done to cause a given effect but once people who are unpredictable and whose behavior isn't static when incentives change, they disrupt the model of what was going to happen. So this gets back to Peter's model and a model. And in a somewhat related note, San Francisco has started floating the idea of paying people at high risk of committing gun violence, $300 a month to not shoot people. Uh, so, so expect an increase in high-risk people soon in San Francisco, I guess is the, wow. the moral of that story. But yeah, I, I, I think that's the perfect example, Justin. Wow. All right, Peter, what you got for 17? 17, a little longer here, that self-interest, creativity, and competition within private property-based markets are very robust. Opportunities to gain will eventually although never instantaneously, be sought out and exploited. The economist's shorthand way of expressing this prior is that $20 bills do not remain laying on the sidewalk for the taking. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is this does even more work than I think Boudreaux puts in 17. So something, you know, the, the econ shorthand is really valuable. It's like if you see a $20 bill on the sidewalk, you know, you reach down and pick it up. But you also might wonder, why is this sitting on the sidewalk, if, especially if you're in like a crowd of people? Everyone passes by, you know, people used to do, I don't know if this is still a thing because change is basically valueless now, but people used to like glue coins to sidewalk as like a joke <laughs> or things like that, you know? So when someone is offering you a really good deal, I think it pays to be a little bit skeptical. I think this is some of the work that this does either in politics or honestly in markets, you know, miracle food, you know, that this is always the, the question with any deal like this is why hasn't this been done before? Sometimes it's because, wow, this was really the first person to see the $20 bill. But, you know, especially with more obvious solutions, it's, it's likely that it's not actually a $20 bill, that unintended consequences from the, the action or, you know, cost more than $20. Yeah. But I think a little bit, this is where economists struggle with entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and entrepreneurship, right? Is that That's exactly you assume right. that the $20 bill is not there, but there's something new. Yes. We know that things are changing and economists tend to prefer to deal with um, uh, static models that have solutions. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Boudreaux does a good job of mentioning that opportunities to gain will eventually, although not instantaneously, be sought out and exploited. I think maybe the entrepreneurial part of this too, in contrast with the static model, is that in a dynamic system where there is constant creative destruction, opportunities like this are going to arise. Yeah. Um, not only will the opportunities that arise eventually be taken advantage of them, but the nature of the system means that these opportunities will also arise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So individuals, number 18, individuals who stand to reap personal benefits by exploiting opportunities to gain are much more likely to seek out or to notice such opportunities. 
and to exploit these opportunities as effectively as possible than our individuals who do not stand to reap personal benefits by doing so. One important implication is that whenever a politician, pundit, preacher, professional insists that the state should initiate coercion to solve some alleged problem, that person is highly likely to be mistaken. All right, it's a little public choice swing there to some degree. Yeah, if listeners got lost in the statement because it is very long and there's like, you know, we've got offsetting dashes. Yeah, I did like as that. best I could. Yeah, to... <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think there's a way you could have read that any better. But if you're not reading it with all the punctuation, it, it's tough. But I think one way you could keep track of this in your head is like, what's the skin in the game? Yeah. And so, you know, when someone is actually experiencing a problem, they likely have skin in the game to, to fix it. Whereas when someone actually is benefiting from, you know, an attempted solution to the problem, you maybe should be a little bit skeptical of that. And so if like a scientist comes out and says, well, uh, and the scientist maybe works on something like not purposefully attacking mRNA, but it's, I've been reading a book on it recently. So that comes to depth to minds, but a scientist who's worked on mRNA their whole life says this could be the solution to uh, coronavirus. And, and maybe it is, but the point is you should be a little bit skeptical when a person who stands to benefit a lot from a solution proposes, you know, what they benefit from as the solution. It's, it's just a, a, something you should be a little bit careful of. Or for example, someone who studies industrial agriculture saying, well, the solution to global warming is <laughs> ending our current agricultural system. Maybe, or maybe you want to publish a lot of papers on that. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. Well, Plato's Republic, where he comes to the conclusion that the way we ought to order society is to put philosophers in charge. Right? <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. All right, number 19. Each person is less willing to take some action. The greater are the costs to that person of taking that action, and the fewer are the benefits to that person of taking that action. Okay, that was a tongue twister. <laughs> so basically, if something costs you more, you're going to do it less, and if it benefits you more, you're going to do it more. Yeah, yeah. On the margin. Right? Yeah. Seems obviously true. On the margin. In other words, incentives matter, right? Yeah. Okay. And I, what I do like going way back to the last podcast in number two of the last podcast, one of the things that Boudreaux says that I do agree with is the second part of number two, which is that humans aren't Pavlovian creatures destined to react to all stimuli in unalterable ways. I actually do agree with that. I, I, I think that, you know, behavioralists in science tend to overstate the things that, you know, I think it's Skinner is one of them and, and Pavlov have found basically about behavior. And so I, I think there's a nice compromise here that, like Justin said, on the margin, you know, in other words, when you increase the cost of something, some people are going to do it less, but not all people. And so Boudreaux says, well, it's not unalterable. It's not like you can fully control people's behavior by, by changing incentives because we don't exactly understand why they're acting the way they are. And so I think 19 is, uh, or yeah, 19 is a good compromise when you put it to pair it together with number two. All right, Luke, you want to finish soft with number 20? Other than breathable air and gravity, nothing in this world that is of use to humans is free. Getting more of one thing always requires getting less of some other thing or things. Well, I have to disagree with this one. <laughs> breathable air, I mean, I, I think that's arguable in places where there's heavy pollution, in other words. So I'm still on the camp that there's no such thing as a free lunch. The closest we get is by allowing free trade and exchange, voluntary exchange, allows us to use 
our existing resources more efficiently such that there's more of everything. Uh, to me, I, I think I had one of my professors back in graduate school say that this is the closest thing to a free lunch we have in economics. So, so I get your argument against air being free. What's your argument against gravity? Uh, you know, we can't restrict ourselves to just the earth. That's a very uh, I, I, I do true thing to say. Right so, there. so I I do believe in something called like general conditions. My comment is that no goods are free, and so you might say, well, isn't air a good? And my answer is, well, in the case where it's like super abundant, my answer is no. So let's ignore pollution and underwater and all that stuff. I don't think air is a good. It's just a condition. A good, in my opinion, is something that you act to get. It's something that you have to go out of your way to get. It's like blinking isn't, you know, something that's like <laughs> scarce either. Like you just do it, your heart, your heart's ability to beat. In the average person, of course, you could maybe talk about people with like, you know, that's not scarce. It just happens. Your existence is not something that you pay for. Uh, you know, that that's just like a, a general condition. And so like there are things that are like physical reality, certainly, right? This is another thing that's a good, like, you know, we operate within it, but it's a, it's a condition. It's not something you act to get. So goods aren't free. There are things that don't require us to act in order to have them. You know, physical reality is like the classic example. So other than those conditions though, uh, you know, I, I tend to think things aren't free, but then I think entrepreneurship actually flies in the face of this a little bit. A Pareto improvement yes. is a free lunch. Yes. Uh, if we're, we're very technical. In other words, if you can help one person without hurting anyone, there's kind of a free lunch. And I think Boudreaux would say this as well. I think the cool thing about there's no such thing as a free lunch is that outside of conditions where entrepreneurs stand to benefit from discovering the improvements, it's unlikely you're going to discover them. I The classic, the reason that the term was phrased, there's no such thing as a free lunch, it was in response to government programs. Mm -hmm. And I think in that context, it is always true yeah. that whenever the government wants to do something, something, they're doing that at someone else's expense. That's what the institution is. It's let's move money from one place to another place. Yeah, I think it was Kersner, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that brought up the idea of entrepreneurship being costless. Yes. There's no cost to it, right? So an entrepreneur all of a sudden has this aha moment mm -hmm. where he or she thinks resources could be combined in a different way that would better suit humanity or you know somebody's um, interests. And in that regard, that new innovation, that spark, that aha moment was actually cost-free because the person just kind of came to it, yep. not through really intentional, purposeful means on that moment anyway. Yeah. And that, um, that's hard to explain kind of. It, it is tough to explain, but I, you're, you've hit it on the nose because Israel Kirshner is an economist whose whole life project was how do I reconcile this Austrian view of entrepreneurship that I get from my teacher Mises? with these neoclassical models of supply and demand, which seem to explain the world very well and which I agree with a lot of their aspects. And what Kersner came up with is, well, on things where, you know, we don't get them for free, supply and demand work perfectly, but there is this one free lunch out there, entrepreneurial alertness that allows us to create and innovate. Everyone has it, you know, you can, it just sparks up in your brain, it's free. And from that, we get, you know, innovation and change over time, which we see in reality, which the Austrians point out. And so Which I, I then comes at a cost. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's after, that, it's after that the implementation. aha moment. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Uh, we made it through all 20. I hope you found this uh, interesting to try to get some insights of where 
a lot of our discussions come from on various cultural and faith aspects. So this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us and feel free to just tell your friends about the podcast if you like what you hear. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.